Hello, listeners and readers. Thank you for joining me. There's a couple of very short chapters that are going to be coming up, so I think today I am going to be reading three chapters, and we're going to start with chapter 20 in A Tree Grows in Brooklyn. Chapter 20. Katie's campaign against vermin and disease started the day her children entered school. The battle was fierce, brief, and successful. Packed closely together, the children innocently bred vermin and became lousy from each other. Through no fault of their own, they were subjected to the most humiliating procedure that a child could go through. Once a week, the school nurse came and stationed herself with her back to the window. The little girls lined up, and when they came to her, turned round, lifted their heavy braids, and bent over. Nurse probed about the hair with a long, thin stick. If lice or nits were in evidence, the little one was told to stand aside. At the end of the examination, the pariahs were made to stand before the class, while nurse gave them a lecture about how filthy these little girls were and how they had to be shunned. The untouchables were then dismissed for the day with instructions to get blue ointment from Kip's drugstore and have their mothers treat their head. When they returned to school, they were tormented by their peers. Each offender would have an escort of children following her home, chanting, Lousy, you're lousy, teacher said you're lousy, had to go home, had to go home, had to go home because you're lousy. It might be that the infected child would be given a clean bill next examination. In that case, she, in turn, would torment those found guilty, forgetting her own hurt at being tormented. They learned no compassion from their anguish, thus their suffering was wasted. There was no room in Katie's crowded life for additional trouble and worry. She wouldn't accept it. The first day that Francie came home from school and reported that she sat next to a girl who had bugs walking up and down the lanes of her hair, Katie went into action. She scrubbed Francie's head with a cake of her own coarse, strong, yellow scrubwoman soap until her scalp tingled with rawness. The next morning, she dipped her hairbrush into a bowl of kerosene oil, brushed Francie's hair vigorously, braided it into braids so tight that the veins on Francie's temples stuck out, instructed her to keep away from lighted gas jets, and sent her off to school. Francie smelled up the whole classroom. Her seat sharer edged as far away from her as possible. Teacher sent a note home forbidding Katie to use kerosene on Francie's head. Katie remarked that it was a free country and ignored the note. Once a week, she scrubbed Francie's head with the yellow soap. Every day, she anointed it with kerosene. When an epidemic of mumps broke out in the school, Katie went into action against communicable disease. She made two flannel bags, sewed a bud of garlic in each one, attached a clean corset string, 
and made the children wear them around their necks under their shirts. Francie attended school stinking of garlic and kerosene oil. Everyone avoided her. In the crowded yard, there was always a cleared space around her. In crowded trolley cars, people huddled away from those Nolan children. And it worked! Now, whether there was a witch's charm in the garlic, whether the strong fumes killed the germs, or whether Francie escaped contracting anything because infected children gave her a wide berth, or whether she and Neely had naturally strong constitutions, is not known. However, it was a fact that not once in all of the years of school were Katie's children ever sick. They never so much as came down with a cold, and they never had lice. Francie, of course, became an outsider, shunned by all because of her stench. But she had become accustomed to being lonely. She was used to walking alone and to be considered different. She did not suffer too much. Chapter 21 Francie liked school, in spite of all the meanness, cruelty, and unhappiness. The regimented routine of many children, all doing the same thing at once, gave her a feeling of safety. She felt that she was a definite part of something, part of a community gathered under a leader for the one purpose. The Nolans were individualists. They conformed to nothing except what was essential to their being able to live in their world. They followed their own standards of living. They were part of no set social group. This was fine for the making of individualists, but sometimes bewildering to a small child. So Francie felt a certain safety and security in school. Although it was cruel and ugly routine, it had a purpose and a progression. School was not all unrelieved grimness. There was a great golden glory lasting half hour each week when Mr. Morton came to Francie's room to teach music. He was a specialized teacher who went around to all the schools in that area. It was holiday time when he appeared. He wore a swallow-tailed coat and a puffed-up tie. He was so vibrant, gay, and jolly, so intoxicated with living, that he was like a god come from the clouds. He was homely in a gallant, vital way. He understood and loved children, and they worshipped him. The teachers adored him. There was a carnival spirit in the room on the day of his visit. Teacher wore her best dress and wasn't quite so mean. Sometimes she curled her hair and wore perfume. That's what Mr. Morton did to those ladies. He arrived like a tornado. The door burst open and he flew in with his coattails streaming behind him. He leapt to the platform and looked around smiling and saying, well, well, (laughs) in a happy voice. The children sat there and laughed and laughed out of happiness and teacher smiled and smiled. He drew notes on the blackboard. He drew little legs on them to make them look as they were running out of the scale. He made a flat note look like Humpty Dumpty. A sharp note would rate a thin, beat-like nose zooming off of it. All the while, he'd burst into singing 
just as spontaneously as a bird. Sometimes his happiness was so overflowing that he couldn't hold it, and he'd cut a dance caper to spill some of it out. He taught them good music without letting them know it was good. He set his own words to the great classics and gave them simple names like lullaby and serenade and street song and song for a sunshine day. Their baby voices shrilled out in Handel's Largo and they knew it merely by the title of him. Little boys whistled part of Duvrock's New World Symphony as they played marbles. When asked the name of the song, they'd reply, oh, going home. They played Potsy, humming the soldier's chorus from Faust, which they called Glory. Not as well-loved as Mr. Morton, but as much admired was Miss Burnstone, the special drawing teacher who also came once a week. Ah, she was from another world, a world of beautiful dresses of muted greens and garnets. Her face was sweet and tender, and, like Mr. Morton, she loved the vast hordes of unwashed and unwanted children more than she loved the cared-for ones. The teachers did not like her. Yes, they fawned on her when she spoke to them and glowered at her when her back was turned. They were jealous of her charm, her sweetness, and her lovely appeal to men. She was warm and glowing and richly feminine. They knew that she didn't sleep alone nights as they were forced to. She spoke softly in a clear singing voice. Her hands were beautiful and quick with a bit of chalk or a stick of charcoal. There was magic in the way her wrist turned when she held a crayon. One wrist twist, and there was an apple. Two more twists, and there was a child's sweet hand holding the apple. On a rainy day, she wouldn't give a lesson. She'd take a block of paper and a stick of charcoal and sketch the poorest, meanest kid in the room. And when the picture was finished, you didn't see the dirt or the meanness. You saw the glory of innocence and the poignancy of a baby growing up too soon. Oh, Miss Burnstone was grand. These two visiting teachers were the gold and silver sun splash in a great muddy river of school days. Days made up of dreary hours in which teacher made her pupils sit rigid with their hands folded behind their back while she read a novel hidden in her lap. If all the teachers had been like Miss Burnstone or Mr. Morton, Francie would have known plain what heaven was. But it was just as well. There had to be the dark and muddy waters so that the sun could have something to background its flashing glory. Chapter 22 Oh, magic hour when a children first knows it can read printed words. For quite a while, Francie had been spelling out letters, sounding them, and then putting the sounds together to mean a word. But one day, she looked at a page, and the word mouse had instantaneous meaning. She looked at the word, and the picture of a gray mouse scampered through her mind. She looked further, and when she saw horse, she heard him pawing the ground and saw the sun glint on his glossy coat. The word running 
hit her suddenly, and she breathed hard as though running herself. The barrier between the individual sound of each letter and the whole meaning of the word was removed, and the printed word meant a thing at one quick glance. She read a few pages rapidly and almost became ill with excitement. She wanted to shout, about, shout it out. She could read. She could read. From that time on, the world was hers for the reading. She would never be lonely again, never miss the lack of intimate friends. Books became her friends, and there was one for every mood. There was poetry for quiet companionship. There was adventure when she was tired of quiet hours. There would be love stories when she came into adolescence, and when she wanted to feel a closeness to someone, she could read a biography. On that day, when she first knew she could read, she made a vow to read one book a day as long as she lived. She liked numbers and sums. She devised a game in which each number was a family member, and the answer made a family grouping with a story to it. Not was a babe in arms. He gave no trouble. Whenever he appeared, you just carried him. The figure one was a pretty baby girl, just learning to walk and easy to handle. Two was a baby boy who could walk and talk a little. He went into family life, into sums, etc., with very little trouble. And three was an older boy in kindergarten who had to be watched a little. Then there was four, a girl of Francie's age. She was almost as easy to mind as two. The mother was five gentle and kind. In large sums, she came along and made everything easy the way a mother should. The father, six, was harder than the others, but very just. But seven was mean. He was a crotchety old grandfather and not at all accountable for how he came out. The grandmother, eight, was hard too, but easier to understand than seven. Hardest of all was nine, he was company, and what a hard time fitting him into family life. When Francie added a sum, she would fix a little story to go with the result. If the answer was 924, it meant that the little boy and girl were being minded by company whilst the rest of the family went out. When numbers such as 1024 appeared, it meant that all the little children were playing together in the yard. The number 62 meant that Papa was taking the little boy for a walk. 50 meant that Mama had a baby out in the buggy for an airing. And 78 meant Grandfather and Grandmother sitting home by the fire of a winter's evening. Each single combination of numbers was a new setup for the family, and no two stories were ever the same. Francie took the game with her up into algebra. X was the boy's sweetheart who came into the family life and complicated it. Y was the boyfriend who caused trouble. So arithmetic was a warm and human thing to Francie and occupied many lonely hours of her time. <laughs>